Good evening and welcome to the Independent News Hour. I'm John Tarleton, editor in chief of the Independent, New York City's lefty newspaper and website at independent.org. And that's I N D Y P E N D E N T dot org. We've got another fantastic show in store for you this evening. And I'm also joined by our co host, Amba Gagarian. Hi, John. It's great to be here with you and all of our listeners on 99.5 FM and streaming on WBAI.org. In, in Albany, negotiations continued today ahead of Friday's deadline for completing New York's annual state budget. All kinds of other policy proposals, both good and bad, get pulled into these negotiations. In our first segment, we'll talk about Governor, Governor Kathy Hochul's push to reverse New York's historic 2019 bail reform law with Akeem Browder, who knows in a very personal way why we can't go back to the past with our bail laws. We're also going to hear from the Independence Ted Ham about justice finally arriving in Brooklyn for a man who was wrongly convicted in a murder case and spent several years in prison for a crime he did not commit. And we'll talk inflation, unemployment, and the Federal Reserve's plan to increase interest rates starting this month with radical economist Patty Quick. But now, let's turn to our first segment. Another battle that is raging this week in Albany is over the future of bail reform and other criminal justice reforms that were passed in 2019. The story of the late Khalif Browder helped inspire the movement to dramatically reduce the use of cash bail for people charged with crime. In 2010, Khalif was thrown into Rikers for allegedly stealing a backpack at the age of 16. He refused to take a guilty plea and was held there for three years awaiting a trial. His case was eventually dismissed, but he was so traumatized by his experience at Rikers that he took his own life after he was released. His older brother, Akeem Browder, has committed his life to incarceration reform from Rikers to Albany. Akeem is the founder of the Khalif Browder Foundation, which operates a youth program in the penal colony. The foundation also helps to organize city and statewide campaigns for criminal justice reform and played a key role in winning a historic bail reform law in 2019. Akeem is here to talk to us about what Rikers is like today and what Governor Kathy Hochul's last minute plan to gut some of New York's landmark criminal justice reforms, which has taken over much of the budget talks in Albany. Akeem, welcome to WBAI. We're very honored to have you here with us. Hi, thanks for having me. Good afternoon. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we know you're busy. Thanks for being here. So we're going to jump right, right into it. So Kathy Hochul's new 10-point public safety plan Roll, it's basically a rollback bail reform plan. Um, we'll roll back bail reform. We'll roll back um, progress made in evidence discovery reform and raise the age. So tell us what some of those protections mean and what it will mean if we lose some of the protections that have been won. So thank you for uh, making sure that we don't only talk about bail as though that's the only thing that Kathy Hochul is doing. Raise mm -hmm. the age is also another thing that she is trying to take away, which is a bill that uh, we'll start off with just uh, what these bills are. Raise the age uh, was to ensure that uh, youth are considered youth and not adults. Uh, so the state of New York uh, was using uh, or was assessing youth uh, at the age of 16 to say that they are adults. And we fought. We taught New York uh, New Yorkers what uh, what it means to have that kind of uh, assessment uh, and to be looked at as an adult, even, uh, in, in, especially in a penal system. Uh, and so we fought that battle. We won that battle. 
and Kathy Hochul, who has never visited Rikers Island, who is not from our community and does not know what she's doing because realistically, she was put into this position after our failed governor prior to her. Um, she was not voted in. So what she's trying to do right now, it sounds like, it seems like what she's trying to do is win over the, the party that will fund her uh, and not think about communities. I think it's half, uh, half, uh, half-assed what she's doing, excuse my language, but um, she's not thinking about what, I'm sorry, uh, what bail uh, or, or evidence discovery uh, or even speedy trial um, would really do if you bring it back to these old policies. What it will do is create another caliph, another scenario where it's still happening to this day. It's not like it actually stopped. She also is, uh, is assisted in, in her, in her uh, agenda by the mayor. This mayor of New York now, uh, Eric Adams, he's an ex-police officer, so he believes in what he's doing. I'm not knocking him. However, I am thinking he is not the person to actually speak on these issues. He talked about we need solitary confinement. What human being actually talks about needing solitary confinement? That's insane. These people are human beings. And on top of that, they are innocent until proven guilty. On top of all of that, We've had elected officials go to Rikers because New Yorkers and as well as people outside of New York believe that they ended solitary confinement. They also believe that we were going to end Rikers Island. Rikers Island is still in existence and they're looking at fixing the infrastructure, meaning they're not going to give it up. And then second, they did not end solitary confinement. I can tell you that the elected officials, Natalia Fernandez and AOC, along with a bunch of others, as well as Jemani Williams, has gone to Rikers and confirmed that they are still doing solitary confinement. And now that this mayor said we need solitary confinement, this tells me New York is in a, is going into a really bad situation. Sorry, right. And, and um, we have a clip here uh, that we're going to play in a sec, which is uh, Kathy Hochul speaking at a March 21st press conference defending her plan to roll back criminal justice reforms from three years ago. This is uh, Kathy Hochul. This is not the first time I've had the opportunity to negotiate and work with individuals. I know how to bring people together, and I'm going to continue meeting people where they are, listening to their concerns, and also knowing that I have also the safety of New Yorkers at stake, as well as protecting the rights of individuals who are accused of crimes. Uh, I will strike the right balance in, in what we're doing here, and I feel confident. So, Akeem Browder, uh, uh, do you feel like uh, Kathy Hochul is going to strike the right balance? And also, I understand you were up in Albany as recently as yesterday. What, what's the lay of the land there? What are you hearing and feeling on the ground? Well, one, I think uh, we have to realize that New York is, seem, is, is coming across as bipolar. Just as of 2019, passing a lot of these reforms and it doesn't even get enacted until 2020, where then we go through a global crisis and everyone at this point is in a is in a manic state. However, you want to roll back reforms that are actually known and evidence based to show that we can uh, that this is helpful to the communities. One, Kathy Hochul says that she is confident. She can't be confident. If you're confident, then that means you've looked at the research and the research shows that none of this is going to work. However, what she's saying really is, I'm confident that I'm going to gain the support of the investors that will put money into, uh, into my campaign so that I can get this election. She's not thinking about the people. If she did, she would visit some of these communities that she's going to be uh, supporting to get incarcerated. Mass incarceration never helps. 
And, and, you know, a phrase that's sort of uh, thrown around, not thrown around a lot, a phrase that is used often is, is that ought to honor Khalif when we're considering um, these measures that are taken towards or against um, a just way to look at criminal justice, if that's even possible. How, how can we do that? What would it mean to honor Khalif? And in, you know, in the imagination, what does that look like? You know, it, it, it's, it's, it a, it's, it's a shame to, uh, to Khalif, to me and my family, that Governor Hochul would undo these very modest gains uh, made in my brother's name, especially because of her efforts of uh, our purely political, a result of fear-mongering out, and an outright lie by uh, the uh, NYPD prosecutors and politicians. And it's just a plan to, uh, that dis- is disgraceful. Uh, at, at this time, we, I'm sorry, did my camera, um, yeah, at this time, I'm sorry, at, at this time, we're at a point where we need humanitarian efforts. We need hu- people to realize that there are suffering going on, there's suffering going on, and in, in the way of, there's so many families that's disenfranchised, there's so many families that's put out because they couldn't afford, they couldn't keep their job. They have sicknesses. They've lost family members that were the, the breadwinners, so to speak, in their family. And now New Yorkers don't know what to do. There's no support coming by way of social services. There's people trying to, uh, uh, that's trying to evict people at times like this. I mean, we need to start rehabilitating. We need to start being people-oriented and stop looking at giving billion-dollar plans, 10-point billion-dollar plans to stadiums. To stadiums, yeah. when realistically there are communities, there's families that are in need, but you would prioritize businesses as though these old businesses would ever give the money to the people. They don't. And it's, it's, it's proven. So obviously she's a bad choice. For anyone listening, she is a bad choice of a governor, but she's also a bad humanitarian. And for you to run a state, you have to have some kind of humanity. If not, the state could roll over on you. Right. And, and I also want to just note with these uh, reforms that were passed three years ago, how they can uh, work in tandem as well. Like, we haven't talked much about the discovery laws that were changed, but before 2019, New York had some of the very worst discovery laws of any state in the whole country. Prosecutors yes. could withhold evidence from uh, the defense attorneys until the day before trial. So it made it uh, one. It made it very difficult to, for defendants to even know what the evidence against them was, and, and to be able to mount any sort of effective defense before going on trial. And this would happen while they were being held for lengthy periods of time on cash bail. So they were in a, in, in this uh, limbo of being stuck in Rikers for months or years and not even knowing what the evidence was against them. So um, I, I just wanted to make note of that, but. Also, just to pivot here a little bit, can you uh, tell us uh, what you're currently doing at Rikers Island and in, in the in, in the program you're involved with? So I want to I want to uh, point out that 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 right there, I have direct experience being on Rikers at least three days a week on Rikers with Youth Justice Network, m- mentoring these youth, for making sure they get. We have people. We have youth right now, 17 years old on Rikers Island that one have to deal with the trauma of being in a cell at this current temperature where the, the windows don't even uh, work, meaning it's stuck open. So these kids, I have to mentor 
during the day, but at night, they're staying up all night doing push-ups and pull-ups, putting their mattress on the windows so that they can stay warm because the wind is just pouring in. How do you make someone live like that? On top of that, the water is flowing outside of the toilet. And as the youth admit, their poop, where they poop, that same water is ending up on the floor. So what do you think this, this, this is not causing someone to come out of jail or prison in a healthy mindset? Uh, mindset? What we do in there, we advocate for them. We make sure we do court mitigation so that the judge knows these people deserve a second chance. And what we're going to do is put them in our program. We're giving them life skill lessons. We're giving them opportunities at jobs, OSHA training, um, and so on and so forth. Resume building, interviewing skills, giving them things that help them in their day-to-day lives if they were given the second chance that they deserve. But we all know that the governor and the mayor is working together to make sure we fill the four jails that they already dedicated billions of dollars to building while also keeping Rikers open as an overflow jail. So our fun, our money is going to places that we don't actually as New Yorkers want. We fought for it to not be this way. And look, let's face it, gun violence in our communities is a serious national crisis. Now, the fact is, Every New Yorker has the right to feel safe and be safe. That means we have to reject fear-mongering and invest in community-oriented, evidence-based research. We cannot just keep on doing the same thing over and over, expecting different results. That's the very definition of insanity. Right, right, Akeem. And um, we have plenty more questions for you, but we know you have to leave it here really quickly before we wrap This is a difficult topic for the public to engage with. Many are, but I think it's easy to turn a blind eye to the the real horrors, the death, the suicide that is actively happening on Rikers Island and and in the state and in other prison systems. So so how can people engage? How can we stay informed and uh, how can people support? and, And thanks for joining us. Thank you. And, you know, the Kali Browder Foundation, we're a not-for-profit organization. We work, we don't get government grants because we know how the government's going to use it. So what we ask people to do is understand, one, we have a free newsletter and we put out massive amounts of information, but that you can pinpoint and understand in a layman's point of view. We're not trying to talk technical or anything like that so that you could get confused and overwhelmed. We want to give it to you in bite-sized amounts so that we can educate you, so that you can make a better choice in putting better elected officials in office and also doing um, grassroots work. Please find us at thekhalidbrotherfoundation.com. Please also support organizations that you know are in your community day-to-day, like Youth Justice Initiative, like, uh, um, I'm sorry, um, oh, wait. Also, please make sure you know where our money is going. Places uh, that, that, are, that are getting these billion-dollar uh, 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 contracts, like Exodus Transitional Services, and then we find out women are being sexually abused. This, mm-hmm. this is why we have these problems. Companies are continuously getting these billion-dollar, million-dollar contracts, and yet they're doing nothing for our community, taking our money and running, depleting us as New Yorkers. Well, Akeem Browder, thank you so much for joining mm-hmm. us. Thank you for coming back to WBAI with us and we'll talk to you again. Have a good rest of your day. All right. That was Akeem Browder of the Akeem Browder of the Khalif Browder Foundation, brother of the late Khalif Browder. So if you want to read in more detail, Governor Kathy Hochul's 10 point plan, which the press actually leaked last week, you can go to 
the Gothamist, Gothamist newspaper in New York City, and go to Governor Kathy Hochul's 10-point public safety plan explained and read it all for yourself. Uh, One of those measures is going to be to bring back bail for repeat offenses. So we're going to go do a quick music break, and uh, we'll be back. Prison of seclusion, happiness living on the streets is a delusion. Even a smooth criminal one day must get caught. Shot up a shot down with the bullet that he bought. Nine millimeter kicking, thinking about what the streets do to me. Cause they never talk peace in the black community. All we know is violence, do the job in silence. Officer went in over the years. I've done a lot of growing up, getting drunk, throwing up, cuffed up. Then I said I had enough. There must be another route way out to money and fame. I changed my name, played a different game. Tired of being trapped in this business cycle. If one more cop harasses me, I just might go psycho. And when I get him, I hit him with a bum rush. Only a lunatic would like to see a score crush. Yo, if you're smart, you really let me go cheap. But keep me cooped up in this game and catch the Uzi. They got me trapped. That was Trapped by Tupac. You're listening to the Independent News Hour on WBAI 99.5 FM. I'm your host, John Tarleton, here with co-host uh, Amber Gagarian. Uh, as we were mentioning earlier, state budget negotiations uh, are at their uh, nearing their peak uh, this week as uh, legislators uh, face an April 1 uh, deadline to wrap up the state the annual state budget. A lot of other stuff gets uh, folded into these uh, budget negotiations. Uh, we, we heard about bail reform a minute ago. There's also uh, a lot of very positive uh, uh, measures that people are, are pushing hard for in Albany, including a good cause eviction. Uh, and, and we're going to uh, turn here for a moment for a quick update from the Indies Lachlan uh, Hyatt. He's been covering a New York City housing activists who traveled to Albany today. They were calling on state legislators to pass a good cause, which would provide protections to millions of tenants across the state who do not live in already rent-regulated apartments. Uh, Lachlan, are you there? Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm here. Can you hear me? Yep. It's great, it's great, great. to have you. Um, yeah, so, thank you for having me. Y- you bet. So I understand you're on the way back to the city now with a, a, a bus uh, busload of tenants, but can you quickly uh, uh, fill in for us uh, what went on today, what it was like to be up in the state capitol building uh, with uh, with tenants? And I understand there were a lot of other groups uh, also advocating up there. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely, yeah. Um. Today was uh, there was a lot of different uh, groups going up to included in the state budget, uh, specifically um, uh, Governor Hochul's uh, executive budget. Um, you know, uh, there were 
advocates for uh, home care workers, uh, one immigrants rights activists um, who want to act the housing justice for all, um, a coalition of a bunch of different uh, tenant groups. Uh, sorry about that. Uh, do you still hear me? Yeah, just speak Great. a little louder. Okay. Um, with a variety of different uh, uh, activist organizations and tenants, uh, tenant groups, including uh New York Vocal, New York uh, Communities for Change, uh, Drum, Churches United for Housing. Um, so it was a it was a busy day. Um, basically, uh, we uh, started by uh, holding a, a large press conference in the middle of the Capitol building, um, uh, advocate uh, advocating for uh, the main message of homes, uh, not jails. Um, and so some of the demands. Um, that activists were, were hoping that is included in the executive budget includes uh, strong eviction protections, um, such as the good cause eviction, like you mentioned, um, but also eliminating the uh, 421A um, tax break uh, that incentivizes uh, landlords to um, build uh, and maintain uh, properties uh, for uh, affordable housing properties um, for those making uh, at least a hundred thousand um, uh, dollars. Activists want to see that eliminated, and and the uh, the taxes uh, that are withheld through that break reintroduced uh, to the communities uh, to fund more affordable housing programs. And uh, advocates also want to see um, uh, expansions of uh, rental assistance, like the housing access uh, voucher program. Right. And I understand that you actually have one of those organizers with you, Lachlan, do you? Um, unfortunately, uh, not right now. Oh, okay. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Well, how do you feel about the way that the action went today? Do you think that there, what the prospects are um, uh, based on the sort of momentum that you saw out there and, and what you heard from organizers and advocates, if, if you did hear? Yeah, well, it's, it's interesting because this, um, you know, Housing justice uh, seems to have a, a strong uh, push in both the assembly and the uh, uh, state senate. Um, for instance, um, uh, Senator uh, Salazar, who uh, is a main sponsor of the Good Cause Eviction Bill, uh, spoke at the press conference, and also um, Representative Rosenthal was there, um, and uh, other politicians, um, including uh, Lieutenant uh, Governor uh, uh, candidate. Uh, Anna, um, our, uh, Anna, Anna Maria Archia. Archila. Yep. Yeah. She, she was there and she participated heavily and, um, in the proceedings. Um, but, uh, there seems to be, um, you know, an overwhelming consensus that Hokel is kind of turning a blind eye to, um, housing justice. It was not, uh, mentioned in her, uh, state of the state speech. Um, and she, uh, fails to, uh, she failed to extend the uh, eviction memorandum. So um, there's definitely a lot of frustration and uh, a lot of anger uh, during today's events. And uh, a big part of the the events were uh, civil disobedience. Um, uh, uh, activists. Uh, yeah, me? I understand they, 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 they did a sit-in right in front of uh, Hochul's uh, office there in, in the uh, state capitol building. Yes. The people yes, were arrested. So. Yeah, actually, um, activists brought um, a bunch of small one-person or two-person tents and uh, prepared to be arrested and uh, 
had sit-ins where they would sit in the tents um, blocking her office. Um, when the uh, police and security failed to act on that, um, they then went and blocked uh, escalators and stairways in the uh, center of the building. Um, and eventually, uh, as we were leaving today, um, I got word that uh, around uh, a dozen activists or, or, or so, um, I'll, I'll check back up on that, were arrested. Right. And, and, you know, just to give a little city context, we have uh, you and these organizers up in Albany, you know, fighting for good cause, fighting for against these unfair evictions. And a lot of the top legislators turning a blind eye, Hogle turning a blind eye. Meanwhile, there has, there have been 12,000 evictions since the end of the eviction moratorium on January 15th. Right now, Mm -hmm. uh, Mayor Adams has a goal to buy the first of April, April, evict 150 encampments, which are on the rise because he kicked homeless New Yorkers out of the subway system. Yeah. That's, you know, both extremes. We have, you know, just a lot of evictions happening, but a lot of tenants fighting against this. So on the ground in New York, legislators are hearing from tenants in the city, too. There's been probably at least 10 actions in the past week in the Bronx. They're at the court in the Bronx fighting for their right to have lawyers. There are tenants actually rallying to kick their landlords out of their building. You can evict your landlord. So the list goes on. Um, but that's that's some of the on the ground context. Right. Mm-hmm. We have a situation here where it seems like uh, Adams and Hochul that their only housing policy is to put uh, people in jail. Uh, oh, my God. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, we're, we're going to have to wrap it up. But uh, Lachlan uh, Hyatt, thank you so much for joining us uh, today, uh, being in Albany and, and being able to uh, fill us in on everything that happened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure thing. My pleasure. Yeah. All right. Thanks, and we'll look for more coverage uh, for, uh, from you you on the independent.org website in the next couple of days. Yep. All right. Be well. Yeah. Thank you so much. You bet. Bye. And so we're going to keep on going here and uh, we, um, and uh, we're going to talk some more about the criminal justice. There's not a lot of justice in that criminal justice system. And when it does come, it often is years in the making in 2015, uh, Saul Robles was convicted of killing Alex Santiago uh, during a multi-person brawl that took place in Park Slope, Brooklyn, uh, one night. In 2019, an appeals court overturned the conviction, finding finding numerous faults with how the Brooklyn DA's office handled the case. Uh, Earlier this month, the DA's office finally announced it would not try to retry Robles. Uh, They've been holding back on that for a while. The Independence, uh, Ted Ham has been following this case closely, and he joins us now. Ted, welcome back to the show. Thanks, John. Greetings, Amba. Yes. So writing about the Robles case in 2019 uh, for the Independent, uh, you wrote uh, about the appeals court. Uh, the court's ruling uniquely illustrates the extent to which prosecutors will pursue a faulty case simply to secure a conviction, and it shows how judges – are not exactly neutral players in the process. So what were the original flaws in this case, and uh, why do you think it's so emblematic of what's wrong uh, with uh, uh, prosecutors and the Brooklyn DA's office in particular? Well, uh, going back to the event itself in 2010, it got a lot of coverage because it took place in Park Slope, um, much more uh, 
chaotic and violent most of most Saturday nights there. Um, and then the the main um, one of the main suspects was on the uh, on the lamb in Iowa, uh, and then was brought back to the city in 2013, I think it was. He um, fled a police precinct and punched a cop uh, in the process. But then the, the DA's office made a deal with him to that he 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 named Robles as the the killer. Um, and then they, the DA's office then put this dubious witness on the stand, but in, in the, uh, in the, they knew that by doing so, they were going to have a witness who had this incident with being the cops and, um, and hitting a cop. So that wasn't, it wasn't a really, um, they couldn't bank on that witness. So they, they found another witness who didn't really ever identify Robles. Um, but they, uh, allowed judge Danny Chun, who had also written about recently for the independent, uh, he allowed that witness to testify uh, when he shouldn't have. That's what the appellate, that's why the appellate division reversed the conviction because that witness never identified Robles in the lineup and um, then was asked how she, uh, who she would lean towards um, among the uh, people in that lineup. And she said Robles. And then on, and during the trial, it turned out that the reason for that was she said it was because of his jaw. Right, so there was completely um, undefinable uh, um, recognition, and uh, Sean allowed it. So Sean is a former prosecutor in Manhattan, who's now been a Brooklyn judge since the late '90s when he was first appointed by Giuliani, and he gets keeps getting reappointed. Um, but uh, so he's a prosecutor who thinks like a prosecutor, um, which is that if someone is being prosecuted, it's because they're guilty, uh, and so he was allowing uh, the, the the DA in this case. To get away with uh, putting a faulty witness on trial, and that's why the, that's why it got reversed. And, and wh- why why did the Brooklyn DA's office finally decide to uh, essentially dismiss this case and not pursue a second trial? Well, the uh, the appeals bureau of the Brooklyn DA's office basically fights any uh, contested conviction, and they just dig in their heels and try to come up with ways to preserve a conviction once they've won. And it often works out in their, their favor, but this, this time the case was so weak um, to begin with, but they just sort of, it's just sort of the approach they take is we need to do, uh, win at all costs or preserve our wins at all costs. Uh, and this, and they do have the conviction review unit, but that's a separate uh, entity from the appeals bureau. So, but one thing I wanted to point out too is that when Robles was when the, after the conviction was overturned in the summer of uh, 2019, Chun and the DA's office uh, denied him bail, so he was sent to Rikers for two months, uh, uh, August and September. Uh, I mean, no month is pleasant there at Rikers, but those, those might, might be some of the worst. But in any case, uh, his um, lawyer had to go to the appellate division to get the bail granted. For Robles, so uh, he conceivably could have been sitting at Rikers for all of his office was concerned, um, but uh, over the last two and a half years. But basically, what they kept doing was coming back to court and telling the judge Chun that uh, the DA's office was not ready. For <laughs> competing with a uh, canine here. Uh, we're having we're having a live radio moment here. <laughs> uh, so um, not that's not in my 
different. <laughs> but, um, watchdog journalist Ted yeah. Kim. Uh, let's just make sure everyone's Versus his uh, watchdog. <laughs> okay. Um, so they kept coming back to the, the VA, kept coming back to Chun uh, in court appearances and just saying, we're not ready to retry. We're not ready to retry. And he just rubber stamped it. Right. And that's, you know, they weren't ready to retry a case they already had tried when there was no, there was no new um, witnesses or no, they can't, they have to stick with the original indictment. So it's just sort of giving Robles the runaround. Um, and that's just kind of how they do it. They do things. Okay. And, and, and what other cases, Ted, um, in Brooklyn, have you been following with the Brooklyn DA's office? Well, so Sean has been handling these uh, post-conviction hearings. Um, when a, a defendant brings forth, a convicted defendant brings forth new evidence, there's a, what's called a 440 hearing. And uh, when they assign it to Chun, um, you, you basically get the same situation where he is going to be working in tandem with the DA's uh, team, right? They, they see him as a member of their team. And so he, for the second time, most, most, most defendants never get a single 440. Um, but John Juca has gotten two, and Chun has ruled against him twice. The first time it was overturned by the appellate division, I went all the way to the Court of Appeals, got a produced a very um, reactionary, regressive ruling from the Court of Appeals about um, what constitutes a uh, materiality, as they call it, or, or they, could, they can say basically say, well, if there was misconduct, but uh, the guy's so guilty that we, the misconduct didn't matter. Um, and now the second time around, he's produced another ruling just issued earlier this month um, that's being challenged uh, on appeal for uh, on the grounds that he used the wrong standard of evidence um, in his uh, in his ruling. So uh, we'll see where that goes. But and then the Anthony Sims case that I've written about extensively for the Hindi, um, he's been handling that and has apparently been um, in sync with the prosecutors. Uh, in grilling the witnesses, uh, a couple of the key witnesses on various right, right. occasions. And, yep. and, and, and John Juca, a Brooklyn man who's been in prison since uh, 2005, and Anthony Sims since uh, 1999, I believe. So these are long-running cases, and uh, we'll have to go here in a moment, but uh, we really appreciate all the work that Ted Ham does. We're in a moment where a lot of local journalism in this country is shrinking, and these local officials like the Brooklyn DA's office uh, think they can get away with a lot, but mm-hmm. they've got a uh, Ted ham on their, uh, on their, on their case. So Ted, we appreciate you I, coming back on the show again. I, I bark louder than Patty's stuff. I don't know. I, I'll try yeah. to bark louder than Patty's <laughs> They know it over at the DA's office. That's for okay. sure. Okay. Take it easy. You bet. All Thanks, right. Ted. So we'll be back after uh, this short break and we'll be talking about, uh, inflation, unemployment, your money, all those good things with uh, Patty Quick. Where I'm from, you turn around your cap, you talk over a beat. 
And dig some sounds booming out of Jeep where I'm from. Cocoon tied to you, swim units hundred proof. You want some beef, they will cut you some where I'm from. The beats is infinite where I'm from. Voodoo at Shubanin, gangsta lean where I'm from. I'm interplanetary, my insect movements vary. It's kinky if it's hair. Jeep where I'm from, the fire hoses blow. It's purple when it's snow. I do a hit and go, split. It's hip, what's hip, when hip is just the norm Cause planets pledge allegiance to the funk in all its forms The kinks, the dance, the prints on all the shirts My grandmother told my mother it's Africa at work On vibes we freak, the universal beats You find it at this That was Where I'm From by Diggable Planets And they're from Brooklyn You're listening to the Independent News Hour On WBAI 99.5 FM And I'm Amber Gargarian here with my co-host John Tarleton Now, turning to our final segment the U.S. is experiencing an inflation rate of almost 8%, the highest it's been in 40 years. The cost of just about everything is going up, up, and up. To rein in inflation, the Federal Reserve plant, sorry, the Federal Reserve, let's be clear about that, a main actor. To rein in inflation, the Federal Reserve plans to steadily increase interest rates over the coming year. Joining us today to help us better understand what the Federal Reserve is, why it's doing what it's doing, and who the winner and who the losers will be is Patty Quick. Patty is a retired professor of economics at St. Francis College in New York, a member of the Union of Radical Political Economists, and a contributing writer for The Independent. Her latest piece, which will appear in our April edition, is titled Get Ready for a Government-Engineered Increase in Unemployment. Patty, thanks for joining us on WBAI Radio. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So before we talk about the Federal Reserve's inflation fighting strategy and what the impact it will have, can you explain in a nutshell what the Federal Reserve is, its relation to other banks and how it sets interest rates and why that all gives it so much power? Well, in three sentences or less, no. um, the Federal Reserve is the main bank of the United States um, and manages the entire financial system, um, and as such, it regulates all the all the banks and financial institutions within the United States. Um, it's governed by its board of governors is nominated by the president and uh, appointed by the Senate. They have 14-year terms of office, and they are 100% independent of Congress, which means that the decisions that they make cannot be overruled by the president or Congress at all. So they are what they call independent, meaning independent of elected officials. So don't bother to write your elected officials to tell them, to ask them to change what the Fed is going to do, because they have no power to do that. And what do you make of the Fed's plan uh, to boost interest rates throughout the coming year? And uh, what do you expect the impact to be? First of all, the, the reason that they're acting that way is that uh, inflation is damaging to the prospects, the corporate pro- profits, and uh, is damaging to the capitalist economic system as we know it. Um, so the decision as to how to reduce inflation is to put the economy uh, to slow down the economy, to reduce production, and thereby uh, reduce the uh, reduce general prices, um, and the uh, that means that they want to cut uh, both consumer spending, household spending, and corporate 
investment spending, and that will, of course, put people out of work. The other way to have the same effect is what's called fiscal policy. The Federal Reserve does monetary policy, dealing with money and finance. Um, Congress deals with fiscal policy. They could cut spending or raise taxes, but these days... Um, because the Federal Reserve is so independent of uh, elected officials, uh, the, 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 the Federal Reserve has the main responsibility as capital sees it to take care of this problem that uh, capital is facing. So what they do I is... Go ahead. Go ahead if you, if you have an additional comment. No, just so what they do is is restrict the ability of financial institutions to make loans, and uh, and by doing that, obviously households can't buy cars on credit. Uh, mortgages are more expensive, but actually three times as much of the spending comes from businesses postponing their investment plans. So they cancel the plans for new office buildings, for new factories, for new shopping malls, and so on and so forth. And all of the people that would have produced those things are then put out of work okay so it often gets thought of as oh if i yeah if i want to buy a new car that's going to be difficult like you know i'm going to have to my pockets are going to be a little tighter when the extent of it is i you know my son or myself might not be able to find a job um all right well the current moment is being compared to the late 1970s when inflation was running as high as 13 percent, and the fed ultimately responded by jacking up interest rates to 21 percent and triggering a recession that saw the unemployment rate soar over 10 percent what are the chances we'll see something as extreme as that happen this time i don't think it'll be as extreme in terms of the overall rate of inflation uh which is by the way an international phenomenon it's not united not restricted to the united states but unemployment could easily get above 10 percent um and the fed would probably be quite happy with that um as what they see a short-term solution for what they see as a more fundamental problem so yes unemployment is definitely going to increase they use the term recession by the way to refer to only when there's an actual fall in production whereas most people think of it as rising unemployment unemployment will increase whether production will actually fall to zero or below zero, um, whether the whether it'll actually a total decrease is another matter. But we are heading for increased unemployment. Right. And when we talk about a fall in production, it, essentially when the GDP goes down two consecutive quarters, that's considered a recession. And, yeah. and that may or may not happen, but it will slow down to the extent where you will start to see unemployment rates going up. Correct. You need to have a continually growing um, production, both to take care of an increase in the labor force and to deal with unemployment caused by development and technology. So for both of those reasons, production has to grow in order to maintain employment. Okay. And we're going to uh, go here in a moment to a clip of Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell uh, talking about their plans and how he sees what they're doing. We understand that high inflation imposes significant hardship, especially on those least able to meet the higher costs of essentials like food, housing, and transportation. We know that the best thing we can do to support a strong labor market is to promote a long expansion, and that is only possible in an environment of price stability. As we emphasize in our policy statement, with appropriate firming in the stance of monetary policy, we expect inflation to return to 2% while the labor market remains strong. 
Okay, so that was Fed Chairman Jerome Powell speaking, and he uses a very bland uh, technocratic language in keeping with the Fed's reputation, or at least official reputation, as an apolitical institution that serves the national interest. Uh, Your thoughts about this? Is the Fed (laughs) as neutral as it makes itself out to be, or does it have uh, particular constituencies? They, they, They make it sound that the problem with inflation is the poor workers aren't going to be able to keep up with the increasing prices. That is not the problem. In order to keep up with rising prices, you need rising wages. And the problem is that wages aren't keeping up with inflation. So the problem is not one uh, that the Fed is so worried about all these poor people that can't, can't, can't buy things. That's not what they're concerned about. What they're concerned about is that corporations' long-term investment plans of spending and increasing production are being messed up. And that's what they, and so they present, they present inflation as if it's a problem for workers. It is a problem for workers. The solution for workers is higher wages. Um, and that's not what they talk about. They talk about a strong labor market. They are kidding. They mean a weaker labor market. They mean higher unemployment. And so it will be hard for people to get wages that increase in money terms, let alone to keep wages that could keep up and go beyond the price increases. If he was that concerned about about, uh, inflation, he would have worried over the last 50 years when we barely managed to keep up with inflation um, in terms of wages. Uh, That's a long-term problem. We need higher wages. We need higher, stronger labor uh, organizations. Um, So whenever they, they, people understandably are concerned about inflation. Um, the solution from the workers' point of view is to get wages that are greater than the rate of price increases. So if wages inflation is 8%, you need 10% increase in wages. And if inflation is 2%, you need 4%. In the past few years, inflation has been maybe 2%, and we've got 1.5%. So that we have been suffering from low inflation, and we will suffer from high inflation. Um, Both of those solutions require stronger labor um, activity and higher wages and an increased safety net to deal with those that suffer uh, from unemployment. And and can you elaborate a little bit, Patty, on how the ruling class benefits from the Fed's actions and why you think the rich should be taxed in order to strengthen the social safety net once unemployment starts climbing? Profits will decrease when production slows down. That is what will happen. But the long-term goal is the stability that will allow capital to flourish. In this period, by the way, it will be the small businesses that go under and leave their markets to be taken over by the big businesses. So the big businesses, the big corporations, will take a short-term loss over the next year or two um, because production goes down. But the long-term effect will be to strengthen their ability to make profits. So it is in the long term for the profitability of corporations that the Fed is acting. It is on their behalf that the Federal Reserve is taking these steps to slow down slow down the economy and increase unemployment. So the, the, the short-term cost is indeed obviously on workers because of unemployment. There is also a short-term cost for corporations, but it is short-term that they are quite prepared to accept and deal with. They're having to postpone their investment plans. Poor things. Uh, when the economy recovers, they will go right back in into a stronger market with a weaker labor force and with some of the poor 
poorer and smaller businesses driven out by the by the period of of unemployment. Right. You make also an interesting point in in the article you you wrote for The Independent about how uh, the people who become uh, unemployed in this uh, in this whole uh, situation uh, should not be blamed for their plight and they shouldn't uh, blame themselves. Of course, we have a very individualistic society um, that sees unemployment as a as sort of a shameful individual failing. Uh, can you talk about uh, why uh, we should avoid that sort of thinking uh, as we head into this situation? talk about the unemployed as if it's a group of people that can be characterized as lazy, unable to deal with technology and so on and so forth. What it is, is there's a revolving number of people unemployed. So what unemployment appears to people is experienced is a longer period between jobs. So you're laid off. Um, and instead of getting back into another job in five weeks, it takes you eight weeks or 10 weeks or six months, and then people mostly get back into a job. Some people are permanently driven out, particularly people who are older, um, have health problems. But for most people, what unemployment is experienced as is a longer period between jobs that devastates them, devastates whatever savings they might have got, requires them to draw on the help of their relatives and their communities. Um, and that is a long-term damage, uh, the long-term unemployment. If they're unemployed for six months, they can be, they can be, be evicted, unemployed to pay their rent. Um, that's what unemployment means, as opposed to a group of people that we can characterize as, oh, dear, how come they can't get jobs? They, they do eventually get jobs but from a weaker position. And then from a weaker position, if you've been unemployed for four months, you're more willing to take a a rotten, lousy job um, than if you've been able to survive for maybe three weeks unemployment. So there is a long-term permanent damage that the entire working class suffers. Most people go through periods of unemployment. Being unemployed for two weeks in the year, if everybody was unemployed for two weeks in the year, that would be a 4% rate of inflation, rate of unemployment, sorry. Um, That's what unemployment means. Uh, So that the people that suffer from it are not just the 5%, 8%, 10% of the people who are currently unemployed, but all of those people that suffer from that longer period between jobs. And that means that uh, unemployment is clearly nothing to do with whether they are lazy, hardworking, whatever, whatever. Um, That doesn't change. Um, people who are unemployed are more likely to have less less unemployment because those are the people that are more easily laid off by businesses. Does that mean if everybody had more education, there would be less unemployment? No, it doesn't work that way. Um, So that low education is not a cause of unemployment. It's that the people who are laid off from the business are those who are more easily replaceable, which is the people with less skills at the bottom of the hierarchy within every workplace. And and how will higher interest rates and higher unemployment impact the surge in union strikes and union organizing, labor organizing that we've been seeing um, really around the country? It's more frightening to, to try and organize a union when there's high unemployment because organizing a union is one of the quickest ways to lose your job. Um, so it's going to be harder, but more essential 
to organize on the workplace. And we are actually seeing an uptick in that, which I think is very exciting. I think it's very interesting that there was uh, one recent election for Starbucks in which they managed to get the union represented and acknowledged there were 11 people, which is more power to them. But 11 people and their victory was reported in the news in the New York Times. They are Corporations are actually worried about this. 11 people, I mean, and the number of people who are active in so many different ways, but the fact that 11 people within Starbucks, there are only six Starbucks unions, uh, companies, uh, workshops that, are, that, are, that have unions. The, it really is increasing, and I think that's very exciting. As I say, it's increasingly hard to do, but ever and ever more essential. Right. And, and I've actually been following um, the struggle to organize uh, Amazon, which is, uh, you know, owned by Jeff Bezos, the world's always competing, competing to be the world's richest man in the world um, and the second largest employer after Walmart, who is still the first largest employer in the United States. Um, and uh, so but the the more importantly, the warehouse workers, um, 6000 warehouse workers at the at the largest warehouse out of four on Staten Island. Um, are voting to unionize right now as we speak. There are workers um, exiting this huge, enormous two football field size warehouse um, where they toil for 12 or 10 hours a day and walking into a National Labor Relations Board, large white tent, um, but still dwarfed by the magnitude of the warehouse. Um, and they're voting on whether or not to form a union. And if they do form a union, they will have to fight for a contract with the company to to get, you know, the really basic, basic workplace protections and, and wages that they want. But uh, that is a huge that's a huge move. Your comments on that, Patty? One of the one of the problems is that the delays that uh, the corporations like Amazon put into this mean that by the time the vote it actually takes place, there has been a huge turnover in the workforce because the jobs are so stressful and so terrible that people leave and you're more than half the workforce. I forget the exact number, but the turnover is enormous. Absolutely. So the people that newly get jobs say, oh, thank goodness I've got a job and are therefore less likely to vote for the union. Um, so that if we could get what we want, which is immediate card recognition. If 70% of the current workers say we want a union, there should be a union, as opposed to there should be an election, maybe six months, nine months from now. Let's see about it. Let's talk this. Well, and not only are our workers more likely to um, vote, you know, no, when they've just been hired and, you know, haven't been run over by the company for months, but the organizers have to get to 6,000 to 10,000 people. This is how many people they have to unionize in these Amazon campaigns, just getting to that many people. Well, they're getting fired once you've gotten to them because, you know, Amazon's pushing for the election to be further away. So you're absolutely right. No, it's very hard. But as I say, um, the success is are important. But you need a fundamental change in the way in which representation takes place. I mean, card choice is one part of it. The other thing that is absolutely essential is that unemployment should not be as devastating and scary as it currently is. 
that New York State in particular has really rotten unemployment laws, but compared to New Jersey, which is not that great, but um, it's much, much better than New York. So that unemployment compensation is pathetic. Okay. Um, We'll have to leave it there. We have to wrap up, but uh, uh, Patty Quick, uh, economist, contributing writer to The Independent, thank you so much for joining us this evening. You bet. Thanks for uh, the work you do. Absolutely. We look forward to your article in our print edition. It hits the streets later this week. And uh, we have to go now, but uh, thanks to uh, Lachlan Hyatt reporting from the field and our board operator, uh, Reggie Johnson. And and, uh, we'll be back same time next week. And Amba, what's our uh, song here to leave on? Classic hit, Money, Money, Money by Alba. And still there never seems to be a single penny left for me. That's it.